Welcome in, everyone. Another edition of Sports Medicine Weekly. So happy you're with us on this Saturday morning. I'm Steve Cashel, Chicago Bulls radio host, joined as usual by my co-host, Dr. Brian Cole, orthopedic surgeon from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, and also the head team physician for the Chicago Bulls, one of the team physicians with the Chicago White Sox. Dr. Cole, how are you this morning? Doing great, Steve. Good to be here. Good. Hey, I want to talk a little bit about... Uh, therapy techniques for injury rehab, whether it's post-op, you know, you do surgery on somebody, uh, or if it's an acute injury. Are there any new techniques in therapy to speed recovery from injury? There are two things that are coming up all the time we're actually doing in the training room on a regular basis with our physical therapist. One is dry needling for muscle hyperactivity and muscle strains and things like that. And the other is blood flow restriction. They're both very cool, fascinating, and have an immense amount of science and evidence to suggest that they may be really effective in treating acute injury, not just surgical problems, but acute injury, and also in the post-surgical setting. All right, I've got a great guest on the line, a physical therapist who's been doing it a long time. This guy's tremendous from Athletico. Carson Lux is his name. And Carson, thanks for joining us here on Sports Medicine Weekly. Carson works out of the Naperville facility. I've known a lot of people that have visited Carson and Carson takes care of. And Carson, you do the dry needling. Can you explain that to our listeners, what that is? Certainly. Thanks, Steve. Uh, the trigger point dry needling involves uh, acupuncture needles, and that is the only thing that makes dry needling similar to acupuncture. What I'm doing is I'm identifying trigger points in muscles and finding those knots that exist in, the, in those muscles that interfere with proper muscle activation and can cause pain and dysfunction and limit physical performance. I get those needles into those trigger points and basically press reset on those. I turn those off, get that muscle tone back to a normal baseline setting so the individual or athlete can get back to doing their normal activities pain-free with their muscles working optimally. Is it? Let's clarify, it requires a prescription, right? So I write it and you guys do it, correct? Correct. Yes. And what's is is it? Do patients find it painful? And what's the difference between that and acupuncture? Well, pa patients typically do not find it painful. They find it very. Uh, the word that's typically used is weird, because I'm able to facilitate a muscle contraction when a patient is not actively doing it. Mm -hmm. So they find that to be more. Um, strange than anything else. Very, very few people have pain. Um, what I'm trying to do is uh, get these muscles to quiet down. And in so doing, you know, they're going to feel some residual soreness afterwards because any muscle that's been working very hard over a period of time develops lactic acid. So when we needle these muscles and get them to relax, you're releasing lactic acid locally into the tissue. Now, the difference between this and acupuncture is acupuncture is a component of traditional Chinese medicine, and that involves working through meridians and is used to treat everything from, you know, depression to nausea to a variety of more standard medical things, whereas a trigger point dry needler, I am certified to needle musculoskeletal issues. So I have to know the anatomy. I have to know where it's safe to needle, to, how to avoid sensitive areas, large nerves, large blood vessels, um, needling specifically and very particularly and carefully around the lungs to avoid puncturing lungs. But I can needle all of those areas and I'm simply looking 
to know where is the origin of the muscle, where is the insertion, what are those points that I need to be careful of and avoid, and then go in and perform the needling, get those twitch responses, and hopefully the patient will feel a pretty dramatic and resounding effect almost immediately. Carson, uh, Carson Lux from Athletico, tell, tell us uh, briefly what blood flow restriction is, if you don't mind, and uh, what's it used for? Certainly. Blood flow restriction training uh, has been around, it started with Olympic athletes about 30 years ago, and it's becoming more and more popular. The basis of the training is we put cuffs on the arms and the legs, and we're trying to literally restrict blood flow. And a strong body of research is coming out all the time showing that restricting blood flow and taxing the muscles when they can't get the proper blood flow actually has a positive effect. Um, most notably, it improves release of growth hormone and it makes, it allows and makes the muscles work harder and more efficiently. And you can do so under lesser loads. So in a therapeutic environment, I don't have to have someone doing a high volume of exercise or a lot of weight. I can load them submaximally and load them for a shorter period of time while they're using these blood flow restriction cuffs and get an effect that would be consistent with heavier training and heavier volume. Great stuff. Carson, out of time. Carson Lux, a sports medicine's physical therapist We're almost with almost 30 years of experience with Athletico. Athletico.com is the website, and Carson's out of Naperville. Love it, pal. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, Dr. Cole, next topic. Um, I want to ask you, what's the most important factor in clearing your athletes or really the preseason testing for your professional players? You know, despite being an orthopedic surgeon, it has nothing to do with orthopedics. It's all about the heart. You know, there's only one major thing that we uh, could get wrong, and that's something dealing with the heart. I'll tell you an interesting story, and it'll relate to our next guest. I, the, All of our guys have to do a treadmill stress test where they run, they have a monitor on, then they do an echocardiogram, which looks at the anatomy of the heart and so forth. And um, I had never, I didn't even know what they were doing because we always sent them to a lab at Rush to get it done. So I, not long ago, wanted to see what they do, and I went and had my heart checked. In fact, it was right when I was climbing a lot, and I wanted to make sure that I could handle some of the loads we were doing. And I went to see uh, a wonderful cardiologist who's going to be our next guest, Dr. Steve Feinstein. And he uh, brought me through the entire protocol, and I walked out of there just learning way more than I could ever imagine uh, about what we do to our athletes and then something about myself. So it's, a, it's an awesome topic. Fantastic. So from Rush, Dr. Steve Feinstein is joining us, cardiologist, professional medicine at Rush University Medical Center. Doc, thanks for joining us on Sports Medicine Weekly. First question, what are the common cardiovascular risk factors associated with premature cardiovascular disease? Well, thank you, guys. Again, I want to thank you for allowing me this opportunity. And as I said, I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. Um, cardiovascular risk, uh, big news. In 2017, it killed 18 million people in the world. It's the single largest killer. So what is your risk? When you look at it, if somebody in your family close to you, a man dies under 55 or a woman under 65, that's a high risk. Um, I think you all know the other risks pretty straightforward. Roughly 20% in this country still smoke. A third of us have hypertension. A third have elevated cholesterol. 10% diabetes. And some just eat badly. Every single one of them is a risk. And if you start adding them up, 
that increases your risk of having a premature heart attack or stroke. You know, these heart attacks and strokes, they're not polite. They don't ask you, uh, you know, can I come into your life? So, Steve, when people ask you what's in their control that they can reduce their risk, what is your specific answer? What I like to do is sit down and talk to them. We go through just those risk factors, like what do you eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Do you exercise? Do you ever check your blood pressure, your smoking habits? You know, just simple things you do every single day out of convenience that people know are bad for you, but they don't stop them. You really have to face them off. And I'll tell you, if you push me hard enough after sort of a routine history and physical and lab test, a lot of times I'll push people to what we call a, a coronary artery calcium test. I had, yeah, I had one of those. It's, it's a wonderful screening. Uh, if it shows you you have calcium in your heart, that's pretty clear evidence. You have heart disease, and I'll tell you, that wakes people up. So, so Steve, you, Steve yeah, what you taught me was that if you have the calcium in the heart, that's what the LDLs lay down on top of. Is that correct? That's right. It, it's laid down old scar tissue. It doesn't mean you're going to die of a heart attack or stroke, but it means when we talk about these risk factors, you've got them, and you've got to control them, and you can extend your life. Visiting with Dr. Steve Feinstein from Rush University Medical Center, cardiologist. I had a question for you, Doc. Um, some of the safest ways to increase heart rate during a workout. I remember the Bulls put me on, a Bulls trainer many years ago, on a treadmill and wanted to get my heart rate up for 30 seconds and rest for 30 seconds and get it up again for 30 seconds. I kind of missed that. I'd love to, to get on a, you know, do you believe in that? You know, I would have to say the interval training is what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I think it's reasonable if you don't have these spikes. Uh, people say, let's go hard as we can for 30 seconds. You know, I don't think there's any great advantage to that. And I have to tell you, the marathon or the extreme athletes, I'd have to argue against a bit of that as well. Moderate conditioning, uh, Steve, uh, don't spike uh, your uh, routines. You don't need to. Interesting. Okay. I like that. Doc, is that Dr. Cole, is that what you do? I mean, what do you, yeah, you think about I, your cardio? I try to do HIT, uh, high-intensity you know, interval training to some degree, but um, it's hard. <laughs> uh, and I'm not all that comfortable when my heart rate gets up like 160, 170, and so forth, you know? Right. Um, but, is there ever a danger in really that, good. Doc? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that would be one final question. And one of the reasons okay. I went to you, Steve, was because I was concerned, honestly, about the way I was training. I was doing a lot of high-interval intensity training when I was uh, initially getting getting in shape to climb um, as part of it. And um, I thought that would be beneficial, but I was a little worried when my heart was going off that high. What if I had some underlying heart disease? Uh, any uh, final words of wisdom for our listeners who are really trying to train for something uh, that's special? Yeah, I think, uh, Brian, you're a well-trained, smart athlete. I think when you have any questions, you get on a treadmill, we'll do an ultrasound as you exercise, and we'll run you. And under supervision, we can see if you can tolerate that. Uh, generally, though, it's reasonable to keep the heart rate at a moderate rate. Uh, you know, I think extreme athletes do give us all concerns when the heart rate gets to 200, 220, and sustain that. That's a bit risky. Great stuff. Dr. Steve Feinstein from Rush <laughs> University Medical Center, cardiologist. Great stuff, Dr. Feinstein. Thanks so much for having, for joining us here on Sports Medicine Weekly.
Thank you very much, guys. Up next on Sports Medicine Weekly, our staple of the show, Ask the Doctor. Stay with us. You're listening to Sports Medicine Weekly only on 670 The Score.